You are listening to audio from the Rail City campus of CA Church. We are a church fervently committed to bringing the good news to the city of Port Moody. We hope this message helps you grow in your personal relationship with Jesus. Athens, in that time, was the cultural center of, of really the ancient Near East. Uh, the city was the epicenter for knowledge, the arts, sciences, and political thought. It was the city of Plato and Aristotle, Pericles, and Solon. It was known for its incredible architecture and numerous temples. Uh, and if you were to go to Athens today, you would be so struck uh, even by the, the, you know, ruins of some of these ancient temples. And we've got a picture of one of the main ones here, the Temple to Athena. And, um, and so it's interesting. If, if you're like me, when you enter into a foreign city, you usually find yourself, what, snapping photos, taking it all in, enjoying the sights and sounds, posting to social media, uh, you know, the various things that you've gotten to see, and also sharing what you had for breakfast and lunch and dinner for all of us back home. Overcome by awe and wonder and maybe a little bit of shock as you're in a new place. But it's interesting, this is not Paul's reaction upon entering the ancient city of Athens. Paul, upon arrival, the text is going to tell us today, becomes deeply troubled by the idolatry that he sees. And as a missionary and missiologist, he begins to enter the headspace of an Athenian and consider how to share the good news in this complex culture. You see, Athenian society shared many similarities with ours today. Here's a couple of them. Uh, ancient Athens was very polytheistic. Here's what this means. They lived in a society not with just like one cultural narrative or one God, but rather it was a society with many different worldviews, many different gods, many different perspectives. Athens was also very hedonistic. Uh, the Epicureans' message to the people was this. The purpose of life is the pursuit of pleasure and the avoidance of suffering. And we can see in an affluent, uh, affluent society like ours, we share many similarities. Living for the weekend, the next vacation, that next nice meal, drive an EV with heated seats and a heated steering wheel, right? Four-day work week, comfort, convenience. Order something, it's here tomorrow, right? Uh, and, uh, and so we, we share some similarities with ancient Athens. Athens also had many Stoic philosophers who perpetuated a pantheistic worldview. Uh, that is really the belief in an abstract God, the universe. Uh, they would call it the world all soul. Uh, and it was the belief that God was in everything and that you and me, the stage, trees, lights, everything like that, were all just a part of God's body and he was the soul in behind it. And so therefore God is in everything. Very similar to many in our society who believe in a pantheistic world. And finally, Athens was also home to a small minority of monotheistic people who believed in one God, the Jews. Sound familiar? <laughs> Sounds a lot like our world. We live in a, a world that is polytheistic. There's many different gods that people worship. We live in a world that is quite hedonistic, living for the pursuit of pleasure and the avoidance of suffering. We live in a world that is, uh, is, is 
quite pantheistic. Many people believe in the universe, right? Uh, and, um, and then finally, there are some of us who are monotheistic, who believe that there is one God. I think it sounds very much like Port Moody. And so today, here's what we're going to see, how Paul communicates the good news of the gospel with a people and a society very much like ours. He offers us a crash course on sharing your faith in a context like the one in which we live. And so I believe it's actually really helpful for us today as we look at this story in Acts 17 of Paul sharing in Athens. And so if you are willing, if you're able, uh, we around here stand when we read God's word. We believe these are some of the most important words you're going to hear today. Uh, And so feel free to stand to your feet if you would like. Uh, And uh, we're going to read from Acts chapter 17. And we're going to start in verse 16. Verse 16. And as you are opening your Bibles and pulling up your phones, I'm going to get a sip of water in. Paul in Athens. Here's what it says. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was deeply troubled by all the idols he saw in every city. He went to the synagogue to reason with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles, and he spoke daily in the public square to all who happened to be there. He also had a debate with some of the Epicureans and Stoic philosophers. And when he told them about Jesus and his resurrection, they said, what's this babbler trying to say with these strange ideas he's picked up? Others said, he seems to be preaching about some foreign gods. Then they took him to the high council of the city. Come and tell us about this new teaching, they said. You're saying something rather strange, and we want to know more about it. It should be explained that all the Athenians, as well as the foreigners in Athens, seem to spend all their time discussing the latest ideas. So Paul, standing before the council, addressed them as follows. He says, men of Athens, I notice you're very religious in every way. For as I was walking along... uh, As I was walking along, I saw your many shrines, and one of the altars had the inscription, To the unknown God. This God whom you worship without knowing is the one that I am telling you about. He is the God who made the world and everything in it. And since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, he doesn't live in man-made temples, and human hands can't serve his needs, for he has no needs. He himself gives life and breath and satisfies every need. And from one man, he created all the nations through the whole earth. And he decided beforehand when they should rise and fall, and he determined their boundaries. His purpose was for the nations to seek after God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him, though he is not far from any of us. For in him, we live and move and exist. As some of your own uh, poets have said, we are his offspring. And since this is true, we shouldn't think of God as an idol designed by craftsmen from gold or silver or stone. God overlooked people's ignorance about these things in earlier times, but now he commands everyone and everywhere to repent of their sins and turn to him. For he set the day of judging the world and justice by the man he has appointed. He proved to everyone who this is by raising him from the dead. And when they heard Paul speak about the resurrection from the dead, some laughed with contempt. But others said, we want to hear more about this later. That ended Paul's discussion with them. But some joined with him and became believers. Among them was Dionysus, a member of the council, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Jesus, thank you uh, for this text today. 
I pray that you would speak to us now by your Holy Spirit and that we would learn uh, through kind of this crash course from, from Pastor Paul uh, how it is that we also are called to communicate in a world very much like ancient Athens. Speak to us now, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. All right. Well, Paul arrives in ancient Athens. And there's a number of different things I want us to see in this story. There's three points for us this morning. The first is this. He reasons without wrath. The second is he contextualizes the good news. The third is he represents the person of God to them. Let me jump into this first idea. He reasons without wrath. You'll notice upon arrival, like I said, Paul is not a classic tourist. He isn't charmed by the culture surrounding him, but rather he's troubled. He's troubled. It troubled him. It provoked something within him. It bothered him as he looked around at the idols and the idolatry within the city. Why is he greatly troubled? Well, first off, there's a a number of different reasons. He is a Jew. And in the Ten Commandments, it strictly prohibits having graven images of God. And as you walk around the city and see graven images of gods everywhere, as someone who was brought up in that world and with that worldview, it would be rather striking, bothersome even. Secondly, Jews were strictly forbidden to have any other lowercase g God before the big G God. Uh, and, uh, And so, you know, as he sees all these idols to these various gods who are not his God, it would have rubbed him the wrong way. Thirdly, well, to Paul, he sees all these people who are chasing after idols and they're worshiping at gold statues and stones and shrines. And he understands who God is and what he is like and where he, and the fact that he's a lot bigger than this. And so he, there's something in his soul that wants to point people towards a greater story, a greater vision for who God is. And because of this, he becomes troubled. I remember um, kind of having a similar feeling recently when I was uh, in Israel. So when we were in Israel, we toured all the ancient sites. And it wasn't, it wasn't actually the Jewish sites or the Muslim sites that troubled me. I found them very interesting. But it was actually some of the Christian sites that really troubled my soul. We walked um, up to a place, and it's called the, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. And the Church of the Holy Sepulchre is the original OG location where they believe that Jesus was crucified and rose from the grave. And if you were to go there today, you're going to see it. You can put up a picture here. Uh, it is a, they've, they've built this massive church. This, right, this box right here is the place where they believe the tomb of Jesus was. The very next picture here, more altars to, to Jesus with lamps. And, and, and it's quite beautiful. You might be really taken by it and taking photos. But here was the weird thing. For me and some of my colleagues, other pastors who were there, as we walked through this church, there was something in our soul that was deeply troubled. There was something about it that just didn't feel right. There was something about it. And I I think just especially the way in which people were operating in that space that troubled us because it was thick with idolatry. 
And what I mean by idolatry is graven images, left, right, and center, and statues, and, and, and lamps, and candles, and people are rubbing, you know, handkerchiefs on the stone where Jesus rose from the dead, trying to get some of that resurrection magic, you know, <laughs> lining up for hours, lighting candles, paying indulgences. And there was something about the just in all of our souls, and we didn't discuss it with one another until we left that place that was just deeply troubled. There was something about it that was missing the mark. If you come from, you know, one of these backgrounds, you might be kind of taken aback by me saying that. But I resonated with Paul as he walked into the city of, of Athens he was deeply troubled. But here's the interesting thing I want to highlight for us. What did he do with this emotion of being deeply troubled? Did he become angry? Did he begin to scream and yell and light up the person next to him? No, we see Paul respond in a very unique way. He reasoned with the people. Look at this, verse 16. While Paul was waiting in Athens, he was deeply troubled by all the idols he saw everywhere. But he went into the synagogue to reason with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles. And he spoke daily in the public square with all who happened to be there. And then it says, he also reasoned with some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. And when he told them about Jesus and his resurrection, they said, what's he saying? But this is really interesting. What do we do and how do we respond when we are deeply troubled about something that we see in the world and something that we see in culture? Well, we get a crash course from Paul today. He reasoned with people. I want to talk more about this word reasoned. It's actually, it's this Greek word, uh, dialegomai, dialegomai. And you probably, as you look at this word, you can probably see the root word for the English word, dialogue right? So he went to the synagogue to dialogue with the Jews and the, the God-fearing Gentiles. He, and, and then it says later, he also reasoned with some of the Epicureans. It's also this word dialogue. You see, we, as we are a, a people who want to share about our faith and share about what we believe, we are not called to be a people who get angry and wrathful and begin to shout and jump on Facebook and start typing our rants and screaming at people who have different beliefs and standing on soapboxes. Notice Paul doesn't even preach at them. He dialogues with them. He enters into a conversation with people. I find this very interesting and very counter Christian culture, a Christian culture which loves to shout and proclaim our ideas. And at times, let's be honest, shove them down people's throats. Paul enters the marketplace and he reasons with people. He has a conversation. He begins to dialogue about ideas. And this is the call of the Christian and you and me. We're, all, we're called to enter the conversation with people where they are at and listen. Listen to their ideas. Listen to their perspectives and respond accordingly. 
This is one of the things that I love about Alpha. Alpha was mentioned in our announcement video. But Alpha is one of those places, it feels like one of the last places on planet Earth, to be honest, where it feels like people can get around a dinner table and share different perspectives from different backgrounds and different opinions. And here's the amazing thing about Alpha. And it's created to be this way. Every perspective is welcome. Every opinion is okay. And we just get to dialogue and converse and have a conversation about life's biggest questions. Why are we here? Why do we exist? Who is God? What is our purpose? We get to be a people who reason without wrath. But there's something more going on here. This, um, this, this word, dialegami, or to dialogue, is a little bit more complex than simply having a conversation. I believe that this is helpful for us to understand. Paul is using the Socratic method of conversing. Here's what the Socratic method is. It's, the method is this. You start by acknowledging that the person you are speaking to has a different perspective or different worldview than you. And rather than yelling or arguing or criticizing their perspective, what you do instead is you come inside. You enter their headspace. You try to sympathize with them and empathize. You try to understand where they are coming from. You listen to what they believe and why they believe it. And then as you enter that perspective, you can begin to ask questions from within from the actual perspective of that person, but that's very different than how we do it these days. We become entrenched in our own ideas, our own perspectives, and our own thoughts, and we build up walls to keep people out. And we see this in debates, in politics, all the time. Someone asks a question of the opposing side, and it feels like the person who is, who is listening to the question doesn't even answer it. They just start to spout off their own ideas and thoughts in response. You see, the, 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 this method of conversing, I believe, is much needed in a time like ours, where it feels like the left and the right are getting farther and farther apart, and there seems to be no middle. There needs to be a place in the middle where we can have conversation once again, where we can enter into others' perspectives. And so this is what I'm calling us to as a community, as you talk with your friends, as you talk with your neighbors, as you talk with people who hold differing perspectives than yours, don't become entrenched in your ideas. Enter in and consider it. Because if it's true, right, it, it, like if, if what we believe is true, it will remain true. We don't have to be afraid, insecure, or anxious. We can enter into the, idea, the marketplace of ideas and actually consider. And if you are a skeptic here, or you're someone who doesn't believe what we believe, I'm also welcoming you to take this approach, to enter into our headspace, to consider what we believe, to sympathize and empathize and really get to know, rather than just remaining steadfast and locked in your positions. I love that Paul does this, and I believe it is an incredible example for us. He enters the synagogues, the public square, and later with the philosophers, and he begins to understand what it is that they believe and what it is that they think. It's a very different approach from today. And so the call for us is to be like Paul. Paul actually means small. And I think there, there's something to be emulated here. He made himself small in order to dialogue with others about Jesus' deity, 
This is what he did, and this is what we are called to do. He reasoned without wrath. And we also see he contextualized his message to reach a culture. So let me talk to you about contextualization. He contextualized the good news. And this was Paul's MO, all right? Um, Wherever he went, he entered into the culture to communicate the gospel to those specific people, to his listeners. Look what he has to say in Corinthians. He says, when I was with the Jews, I lived like a Jew to bring the Jews to Christ. And when I was with those who followed the Jewish law, I too lived under the law, even though I'm not subject to the law. I did this so I could bring to Christ those who were under the law. When I am with the Gentiles who do not follow Jewish law, I too live apart from the Jewish law so I can bring them to Christ. But I do not ignore the law of God. I obey the law of Christ. When I am with those who are weak, I share their weakness. For I want to bring the weak to Christ. Yes, I try to find common ground with everyone, doing everything I can to save some. This was Paul's mode of operation everywhere that he went. And we can see that him doing this in Athens through communicating in their language, getting to know their customs, studying their religious systems, and even referencing their contemporaries. And so I want to highlight how he does this throughout this text. Here's the first thing. We know that Paul would have spoken the language of his listeners. Um, So because of Paul's past as a Pharisee, he would have been able to read and speak ancient Hebrew. He also likely would have known the common language of the time of Jesus, which was Aramaic, ancient Arabic. He was a Roman citizen, so he likely knew Latin. But he also wrote his letters in Greek. So we know he spoke Greek. And so as Paul engaged the people of Athens, he spoke the language of his listeners. And I think it's important that we do too. And here's what I mean by that. There is a plethora of preachers who speak fluent Christianese, all right? Uh, They model their speech after the King James Bible. And people come and listen and they hear the message and it feels outdated and inaccessible. And so we need to put to bed this weird Christian subculture language of Christianese because people do not understand it, all right? It's just like does not make sense to them. (laughs) We need to speak the language of the land, not some dialect of biblical English, all right, folks? Uh, And I experience this all the time, right? And literally, it's like learning a, a new language. When I first became a Christian and I entered in the church, I could kind of understand what people were saying, but it was really different. It was really different. They had a tenor that was different. Everyone was very happy and smiley and blessed and all these kind of things. And they were laying down all these words that just totally didn't make sense to me. Big theological words that I didn't understand. And so we need to be a people who speak the language of the land, the everyday language that people understand in order that we can convey and converse with people who don't know the things that we know. And we know that Paul did this. Language matters. I was thinking of my last time in Mexico. Uh, when we went to Mexico, Alyssa, uh, Alyssa Megacy, who works at the church, she came up on sta- uh, stage and she was talking with the congregation and practicing her Spanish. And as she was speaking in Spanish, one of the things she said is, isn't it wonderful that we get to scratch God, right? <laughs> and people were like, what? <laughs> I don't know what she was saying. I remember another story while we were in Mexico. Uh, there was some altar call that was happening. and People are coming forward to the, prayer, uh, to, the, to the altar to receive prayer. And the altar 
also another, you know, English-speaking person trying to practice their Spanish, said, please come and kneel at the, end, uh, the altar and I will ride you like a horse, right? And people were very upset. <laughs> Suddenly these guys are getting up off their knees and totally like, hey, what's going on here? <laughs> Language matters. Language matters. And some of you need to spend a little bit more time speaking to non-Christians and getting to know the language of the land because we are so full of Christian buzzwords. Uh, when I was in my church planning assessment, one of the things we had to do, it was like three days of like various activities and challenges for church planners to see if they're equipped to go and plant a church in 2023. And one of the things we had to do was uh, Christian taboo, all right? So we had all these, you know, various cards with big theological terms. But what we had to do is we had to explain it without saying the theological term and we couldn't use Christian language. So there's literally someone standing there with a buzzer waiting for us to say one of those buzzwords and they would buzz us, right? And it was way more challenging than you think. I was thinking we should do this as like an activity post-service in the foyer, just like, <laughs> just to get a little bit of practice. Here, here's my point, is our words matter when communicating and contextualizing our faith. Um, another way that Paul does this is he used illustrations and examples that people outside of his worldview would understand, specifically people in the city of Athens. Let me show you how he did this in verse uh, 22 and 23. Here's what it says. So Paul, standing before the council, addressed them as follows. Men of Athens, I noticed you're very religious. As I was walking along, I saw your many shrines and I noticed one of them to the unknown God. You see, someone famously said it was easier to find a God in Athens than a person, all right? Uh, and if you walked around ancient Athens, you would encounter on every building, street corner, and even in people's homes, shrines and statues to various gods and goddesses. And one of the statues people would have known was a shrine to the unknown God. And when you live in a polytheistic world, you need to make sure you've got all your bases covered, so you don't tick off a nearby deity, right? Uh, and so how would they do this? Well, they would have a shrine to the unknown God, an unnamed God. And so Paul geniusly refers to this when trying to convey who God is to the Athenians. He used something that was accessible and understandable to everyone in Athens to point them to faith. And he says, you know, I noticed your many shrines. I noticed this one altar to the unknown God. This God whom you worship without knowing is the one I'm telling you about. So he uses this aspect from culture to help contextualize and communicate the good news to the people in Athens. This is the call of the Christian in the postmodern world to contextualize our message, to communicate the good news to our contemporaries, to find examples in our current culture to point to an ageless God. I know many of us are parents. We do this all the time with our kids, right? They're basically foreigners in this planet. They just come like straight in to planet Earth and they don't understand the language. They don't know what's going on. Uh, you know, they've never tasted ice cream before. And so all the time, we're trying to contextualize. We're trying to help them in their little two, three, four, or nine-year-old mind understand the world around them. Uh, I was thinking about this the other day. Emmy, uh, Jessica and I, you know, we'll be having dinner and as a family. Emmy will be sitting there. We'll be conversing and she'll just start interrupting us. She'll just start screaming, ah! right? Like, hey, listen. 
listen to me, listen to me. Like she'll say something like that. She'll say, slowly, slowly. I don't know what slowly means. I think it basically means stop talking. Uh, and, um, and so I was trying to help her to understand the concept of not interrupting, uh, you know, people when they're talking. And I was trying to think about how to explain the story. And then, I, and then suddenly it hit me. I was like, hey, Amy, you, you remember the show Bluey? right? And in Bluey, do you remember Bluey's dad was trying to have a conversation with the other, the poodle? And, and you know, and then Bluey kept interrupting his dad. And so what he said was, okay, you just put your hand on my arm, right? And, and, and I'll acknowledge you by putting my hand on top of yours. And when I'm done talking, then I'll talk with you. And it was like, boom, all of a sudden it just clicked for her. Oh, Bluey, okay. So that whole meal, like every five and a half seconds, she was putting her hand on my arm. <laughs> Rather than interrupting me, I put my hand on hers. But I was using a concept that she understood to help her understand something that was a little bit complicated, not interrupting your parents, a dinner. <laughs> this is what we are called to do, to contextualize the message so that people will understand who have no concept of what it is that we believe. And so I want to give you a few examples of how we can do this. Um, and uh, I kind of wrote these in the, the language of Paul, or at least the structure of Paul. So forgive me, I probably wouldn't do this in a coffee shop, just FYI. But it gives us some examples, okay? So, so here's a few examples. People of Port Moody, <laughs> I noticed your love for nature. And I was, I was walking through your city hall. I saw Port Moody's motto written on the wall. It said, blessed by nature, enriched by man. And as I thought to myself, wow, nature is a blessing, but who made the natural world? Have you ever considered that the natural world and all its beauty and complexity actually points towards a creator who made it all? I once heard a quote by author C.S. Lewis who said this, we should follow the sunbeams back to the sun so we can enjoy the source of its goodness. And I believe behind the sun and the moon and all the created things in the universe is a God who has fine-tuned it all so that we could have existence. He gave us life and breath and everything so that we could respond by giving him our lives. It's just an example. Noticing something in culture that points to God and utilizing that as an opportunity to communicate the things of God to a culture that doesn't understand it. Uh, here, here's a, a, another example. People of Fort Moody, I've noticed that you, that you celebrate uh, and, and you live for equality and the dignity of every human being because they're a human being. And as your own people say, every human being has value and worth. And I believe this. I believe they have innate value and worth. But I believe that that value and dignity that you see in your fellow man points to God who made us in his image and his likeness. And this is why universally we know that all human beings are inherently valuable because they are made by an incredibly, uh, a, a God of incredible worth. Say opportunity to point to something in culture that's really important. To say, I believe this is good. Yes, every human being deserves equality. Every human being should be treated with dignity. And let me show you how this value is actually found within a Christian worldview. So these are a couple examples. Here's the big idea. We need to find entry points into our culture and utilize these opportunities to share about God 
who he is and what he is like. And this is precisely what Paul did. He used points in their culture to point them to the living God. Here's the final point. Final point is this. We are called to represent the person of God. We're called to represent the person of God. And we see him do this on his, in his speech on Mars Hill. Verse 24. He says, this God uh, whom, you, whom you worship unknowingly is the one who I speak about. He is the God who made the world and everything in it. He's saying he is creator. And since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, he doesn't live in man-made temples. He is ever-present, everywhere all at once. And human hands can't serve his needs, for he has no needs. He is self-sufficient. He gives life and breath to everything, and he satisfies every need. He is sustainer. From one man, he created all the nations throughout the whole earth, and he decided beforehand when they should rise and fall, and he determined their boundaries. He's communicating that God is sovereign. And his purpose was for the nations to seek after God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. He is knowable. For in him we live and move and exist. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. He is father. And since this is true, we shouldn't think of God as an idol designed by craftsmen, gold and silver and stone. He is irreducible. He can't be reduced to these simple man-made things. He is creator, so how can the created create God? This is what he's saying, right? See, this is what Paul is doing. He is representing to a world that assumes they know who God is, who God is. And this is what we get to do in our conversations. We get to represent who God is. And the reason I say represent is this, is because many people in our world today think they have an idea of who our God is. They've heard some version of it in the past. But we as the people of God get to enter the culture and represent who he is to a culture that assumes they understand God. We get to talk about the fact that he is creator that he is present, that he is self-sufficient, that he is sustainer, he is sovereign, he is knowable, he is father, he is irreducible. And this is what Paul is doing for them. He's representing a greater story. He is inviting them to believe. And this is what we get to do. We get to reason without wrath. We get to contextualize the message. And we get to represent the person of God. And what will happen when we do this? Well, we see at the end of the speech, there's many different reactions. And it's okay. Verse 32, when, Paul, when they heard Paul speak about the resurrection from the dead, some laughed in contempt, and some will laugh at us and reject us, and that's okay. But others said, we want to hear more. So there'll be some, as, as they hear us sharing about our faith, who will say, hey, I'd like to hear more about that. Can you tell me more? Maybe they'll come to Alpha. Maybe they'll invite you to coffee. But there are some who will believe. It said, but some joined him and became believers. One of them named Dionysus after the god of wine. <laughs> they, they came to faith that day. That's a dramatic transformation. Another a woman named Damaris and others with them. See, friends, as we reason with the culture... 
as we contextualize the good news, as we represent who God is, there will be differing responses, and that is okay. It happened with Paul in every city and every location, including Athens. But the reason we do it is this, because some will say, tell me more. And some will believe because of our message. This is the privilege and honor that we have in bringing the good news to a city very much like Athens. And so, thank you, Paul, for the crash course (laughs) on how to share our faith. I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to enter into our communion moment. So I'll invite the band up now and the ushers to come forward, and I'll explain how we're going to do communion today. So let's pray together. God, thank you for today, and uh, thank you for this like historical record of the early church, how they operated, and how they witnessed to the world. And God, um, yeah, we want to learn from Paul. I pray for, my, for our people now, and for us as a community, that we would put wrath aside. That we would not be a people who get angry and shout and stand on soapboxes and become argumentative, but instead, God, we would dialogue. We would enter into other people's mind spaces. We would actually consider what it is that they have to say. We would listen and we would respond with calmness and not chaos. Help us to model to the world what it would look like to have conversations like this in a world that is so oh, just entrenched in their own ideas and built up walls. I pray we could break down walls through reasoning and conversing. God, I pray that you would help us to have eyes to see the aspects of culture that we can point to that point to you. And finally, Lord, I pray that you would help us to represent you to the world and, give, and tell a greater story, a better story about who you are. Help us to do this, I pray, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message. If you've been listening to our sermons, but you're not a part of a church community, we would love to have you join us. You can go to cachurch.ca slash rail city to find out more information about getting involved in the life and mission of the rail city campus of CA Church.